Welcome to Sal on Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Sal on Air is a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. In this episode, we hear from Mater Joffrey, who joined us in November 2013 at Seattle's Town Hall for a talk on how we become who we are. Prior to Joffrey's talk, I had the pleasure of introducing the celebrated and delightful Mater Joffrey. Following my introduction, we hear from a young writer from Sal's Writers in the Schools program. The high school student Adam Krasowski shares a poem he wrote. Following the talk, Miru Dawala, a renowned Indian restaurateur and cookbook writer, interviews Joffrey. At the time of her visit, Joffrey had written close to 30 cookbooks, several of which had received the James Beard Award. She had written books for children and her much-praised memoir, Climbing the Mango Trees. Famous not just for her work in the cooking world, Joffrey had appeared in numerous television, theater, and film productions. For her performance in the film Shakespeare Walla, she won the Best Actress Award at the Berlin Film Festival. Since then, Joffrey has continued to publish, including her most recent offering, Vegetarian India, published in 2015. In a talk that is part philosophical and part warm rumination, Joffrey gently unfolds the many layers of her rich and fascinating life. We learn how Joffrey became an ambassador for the beauty of Indian cuisine through her career as a prolific cookbook writer. As Joffrey says of the literary tradition she joined, we don't have blood in our veins, we have ink. We also learn of Joffrey's lively, food-infused childhood in India, of her time in New York, where she made a living as a freelance writer while waiting for acting gigs, and of the acting gigs that followed. Listen to find out how she became an unofficial ambassador for Coca-Cola, how Joffrey learned to swim with the aid of a watermelon, and how she joined in a peace prayer with Gandhi. We hope you enjoy this evening with Mater Joffrey. To begin our evening of literary delights, I am proud to introduce one of the young writers from our Writers in the School program. This year, WIT celebrates 20 years of hiring local writers to engage and inspire students throughout our region. And tonight, Adam Krasowski, a ninth grader from Luke Azinger's class at Chief Self High School, which Ms. Joffrey visited earlier today, is here to share a poem with us. Adam wrote this poem while working with WIT's writer, Damon Arundel. Please join me in welcoming Adam. Brick wall. I don't remember getting caught off guard, but I do remember getting knocked off my feet. It hit me like a brick wall. But seeing as you cannot be hit by a brick wall, I just ran into it with my eyes clamped shut. I wasn't the only one. Other kids were doing the same. All kids were doing the same. Being swallowed, engulfed. At the same time, we were thrown into a raging sea. Not to die, but to survive to adapt. We were forced to change. Everybody was. The sad fact is, behind this brick wall is another brick wall, and behind that, another. We ran into them over and over, so hard we got concussed. At 
The end is in the distance, far, far away. But it is there. Many obstructions stand in our way. Four years is a long time if you stop at every one. Make your pen a volcano. From it, words erupt onto a page that is your canvas. Thoughts flow like pouring water. Feelings expressed like priority mail. This is your stand. This is your canvas. Thank you so much, Adam. And now, the main course. I have, and I am betting that you perhaps share with me a deep and passionate love for cookbooks, which is often absolutely unrelated to whether or not I have cooked any of the items included <laughs> in the cookbook. Each recipe is like a map to a unique destination of flavor and texture. And we all know that there are some recipes that work and others, far too many, I would say, that for some reason just don't. Mater Joffrey has said herself of writing recipes, it's a tricky business writing good recipes. Marcella Hazen's work always work. Julia Child's recipes work. Very few people like that give you the details that you need. People can't always write recipes as fully as I want them. People leave things out. You know, how high is the heat? What kind of pan do you use? As the acclaimed author of more than 15 cookbooks, six of them James Beard Award winners, Joffrey is one of the rare writers whose recipes work. She leads us in clear and detailed steps to the delicious and diverse dishes of Asia, India, and all of South Asia. Her An Invitation to Indian Cooking arrived in 1973, an illuminating treasure map to the world of Indian cuisine and it remains in print today, having sold more than a million copies. Joffrey consistently succeeds in unlocking dishes from curries to dolls and breaking them down into steps that we, that even I, can follow to create the flavors from her childhood. Craig Claiborne of the New York Times called her work one of the finest, most lucid, and comprehensive books on Indian cooking ever published. Joffrey's fierce intelligence, her pluck, her joy in living shine through her recipes, almost as if you can hear her saying, here, try this. It's this joy, this energy, and this passion that have made her books and her recipes so beloved. In addition to her career in food, Joffrey is also an award-winning actress, having appeared in theater, television, radio, and over 20 movies, including the celebrated Heat and Dust, Shakespeare Walla, and Six Degrees of Separation. In fact, her cooking began during her studies at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London when she couldn't find any decent Indian food. As she writes in her charming memoir, Climbing the Mango Trees, I knew less than the rudiments of cooking then and found myself writing home to my mother begging her to teach me. This she did through airmail letters that arrived regularly. I was barely aware that my old and new worlds would start to mingle as soon as they touched and that so much of my past would always remain in my present. The innocent Indian honey of my infancy was now mixed with the pungent Indian spices, the sour and bitter, the nutty and the aromatic. Interwoven with these flavors, like tenacious creepers, were births, deaths, illnesses, caste, and creed. Yet somewhere in my depths, each bite, each taste of all I had eaten lay cataloged in some pristine file ready to be drawn up when the moment was right. 
We are all so lucky that the moments have been ripe for Ms. Joffrey to share her love of food and of her skill in cooking with the world. Please join me in warmly welcoming Mother Joffrey. Well, that was an impressive introduction, I have to say, and try and live up to it. Um, this feels like a home crowd, and I'm very happy you're all here. Now, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is how do we become what we become? What process does it take to make us what we are? And I, I've done this in questioning myself a little bit as I've been writing the latest books that I've been writing. And I find that it's a little bit of, of course, our DNA, a little bit of where we are placed in history and geography, what time we are born, what kind of schools we go to. But then uh, there's a lot of it that is our own individual personality. There's something in us. If you notice when a baby is born, within a few weeks it begins to show a person in there that is different from other people. I remember my little grandson, when he was born, he was trying to crack jokes. And it was very clear to me that he would crack jokes. And then when he was asked to say mama and papa, he would look at his father and say, mama. <laughs> and then he would look at and laugh, and then look at his mother and say, papa, because he knew that he was cracking a joke. He was doing something funny. So there are personalities that begin to show themselves very, very early in life. And I think part of my, my personality was always great curiosity. I had to know everything. I had to understand everything. And I remember being in school and being very annoying with the teacher because I wouldn't let anything go through without understanding it. So I would ask questions and they'd be very annoying to the teacher because the teacher didn't want to answer every single, what did this word mean? If I didn't understand it, I would ask. And other people would let it go by. So one word you don't understand, shut up, you know, just leave it alone. But I wanted to know what that one word was because it was important to me that I understand everything. So that has been, I think, a, a, a major part of my being since the very earliest of times. Now, the other thing to put into place, as far as I'm concerned, is I was born at a very, very strange time, which will never repeat itself, because it was a time in history when India was still a colony. It was part of the Raj. Now, some of you have seen movies and television shows about the Raj, which is the period when the British were there. And it always seems like a very romantic kind of period, but it wasn't really, because India was under the thumb of the British, and uh, we were fighting for our independence since 1857. India has been fighting for its independence in one way or the other. But the amazing thing was that since the 20th century, the early part of the 20th century, we were fighting for it in a magical, non-violent way. We lucked upon the great leader, Mahatma Gandhi, 
and who started this nonviolent movement. So everything was being done in a way that it was copied by Mandela later on and by Mart uh, uh, Martin Luther King after that, that we can achieve a lot through nonviolence. And I grew up with that movement, and I was born at that particular time. The salt marches were taking place. Now, you may not be familiar with them in India, but they were rather like the, the Boston Tea Party. We were paying uh, a tax on salt, which was our own salt. The British needed the money, and they had, were charging a tax of, uh, on it for us. And so we marched and said we wouldn't pay it, and Gandhi was, was leading the march. So all these things were taking place at the time that I was born. Very critical period when the, the battle for independence, which was, as I said, a nonviolent battle, had come to a certain point. Now, the other thing about my own background that made me, I think, very much what I am, is that my grandfather was a barrister. And he had studied in England, so our connections with the West were already established. And he had been a very liberal uh, uh, judge and barrister and was known for his liberal uh, policies. And my aunts, you know, they spoke English with a very bad accent. So they would say, he did so many majors, so many majors he did. And I, we, we, I wondered till, my, till I was grown up what these majors were. They were saying measures. So many measures he helped to pass that were for women's rights, for the rights of untouchables, for the rights of you know, all kinds of people. Um, and I remember when he died, uh, it was not allowed for women to go to the cremation grounds. But this man who had done all these majors, his granddaughters were not going to stay at home. So we all marched in the funeral and went up to the cremation grounds, which is not a thing women normally do. So we lived up to what our grandfather's teaching were. Uh, the other thing about uh, my grandfather and all of us is that we come from a particular community in India. In India, you know, there is the caste system. It's been technically abolished, like slavery is abolished. Uh, there's supposed to be no uh, discrimination in this country for color, for race, everything else, but we know what goes on. And India is no different. Uh, there's supposed to be no attention paid to your caste, your creed, your color, etc., etc. But this, these kind of things are in our systems and are not so easy always to get rid of. And uh, the castes are still there. You can't be hired or disbarred from anything because of your caste, but the castes are still there. And I come from a particular odd caste, which is not one of the four major castes. The four major castes are the priests, the warriors, uh, and writers um, who could read and write. The warriors could read and write. They were allowed to. And then there were the traders, and then there were the, the people who did the sort of menial work. So these were the four major castes. I'm sure some bright soul from my community got up and said, God, please listen, I want to read and write and be a literate man, but I don't want to read and write religion. Could I do it some other way? Can we come have a deal here? So, and I'm sure God said, and according to legends, according to our legends, God did come down and said, okay. 
uh, you can be the scribes and the writers and the historians and the justices, uh, and I will give you, and, uh, and he was handed an inkwell and said, go on, prosper, and become the writers and the historians of the times. So that's our particular caste. We are writers. We don't have blood in our veins. We have ink. And so I come from this kind of community where even though I fought it all along the way and I didn't want to be a member of this community, I was running always far away from it. When my mother said, marry into this community, I said, no, 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 no way. I'm going out of this community. Never, never, never keep me. You are not going to hold me here. But the ink never left. And I suspect that I'm a writer because I just am naturally born to it from a thousand years ago. It's in my blood. It is my blood. And that's what I'm doing. So it doesn't surprise me that I'm a writer. I have cousins who are writers, um, all kinds of relatives who are in some field that requires uh, a writing. And I also remember that when uh, there's a particular festival in India where you offer for blessing the tools of your trade. So the farmer puts his plow on the altar to be blessed. And my grandmother always said, okay, everybody, bring your pens, pencils, and your bottles of quink. Bring them to the, <laughs> the prayer room. And we would all take them, and they would be put on the little altar-like thing that we had in our prayer room. And the prayers would go on, and these would be blessed through, through the prayers. So it is actually sort of understood that these are the tools of our trade. So it's not surprising that I am what I am. Now, as far as food is concerned, one of the kids at today's school that I was speaking at asked me a very interesting question. And this uh, uh, child, man, young man, uh, who was maybe 15 or 16, said, how do you become a cook? And I thought, you know, it's a very interesting, serious question. How do you become a cook? And again, I look back on my own life, and I told the kid that, you know, we are born, all of us, with certain senses that are more developed than others. We all have, what, five, six senses. So I'm saying five, six because I'm not sure. Is it five? Is it six? Or something like that. Um, and some are more developed. My husband, for example, has a wonderful ear. He's a musician. And we went for a test. It was an annual checkup that we went for one time. And at this checkup, they played sounds that went from very low down to very high up, and they got softer and softer and softer. He could hear a huge range of sounds. I stopped hearing at a certain point. But then they did something else where I'm very good, which is the visual sense. And they had numbers, eight, nine, 10, embedded in dots. And the dots got lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. And I could see them till the end. So obviously, my husband has one developed sense much more than mine, and I have another sense. But I also have a sense that they did not check and that is the palate. And the palate has, as you know, the tongue has all these receptors on it that is taking in tastes. And the wonderful thing with that is 
that anything that you can taste or see or smell acutely, you remember. If you don't taste or smell or see it acutely, you forget. And those of us who can remember can compare. So if you remember the exact taste of, say, mustard, now, 20 years later, if somebody says, if you cook green beans with mustard, what would it taste like? I can tell you because I can taste it. I remember the taste of the mustard, I know the taste of green beans, and I can put it together. And I can put more complicated taste together because I I, it's not something I did. It was given to me. And I have a palate that is very developed. So it not only tastes many things, but it remembers them. And when you remember it like a musician, then you can hold onto it, and it goes into a file in the back of your head, and you can recall it, you can bring it back. I want file A, zoom, it comes. I want file B, it comes. So you can use it, and you don't know this, and especially a child doesn't know anything about the palate. I write about when I was born, my grandmother came and wrote on my tongue with honey. She wrote Om, which means I am. This was the custom in our house. I was born in the house. I wasn't born in a hospital. And it was the custom then for my grandmother to come and do this right Om, I am, on my tongue. And I was told that I just licked it up very fast and opened my mouth for some more. And so this thing of remembering tastes is very, very important. And I think my answer to this young man who asked me the question was, yes, that is what it needs. It needs a palate. If you can remember the taste, you can recreate anything you want because you can put it together in your head before you actually cook it. You can taste it in your head before you cook it. And that's what cooking, good cooking is. You can create things. You can put things together. Just like my husband. Uh, as I, Again, I mentioned in my memoir that somebody, he was reading a score, a Bach score, and somebody said to him, can you hear the music as you read the score? And it's the same thing. Because you are so your sense of, my husband's sense of hearing is so acute, he can retain the sounds and he can remember the sounds so he can hear them. He doesn't have to hear them played, he has to read the score and he can hear it. So food is exactly the same, it works in exactly the same way. People who are great critics of the visual arts, paintings and sculpture, first you have to see all the colors. So many people are colorblind. And some know it, some don't know it. It's not their fault, that's how they are born. So people have to realize, these are my good senses, these are my not so good senses, and try and make a life with the senses you've got. So that's how you become a good chef, I think, or a good cook. I'm, I never call myself a chef, I'm a cook, because I cook home-style food, I'm a home cook. And, uh, but I can put things together in my head uh, because I remember them. Now, another question that I'm asked very often by people is that do Indian children, 
eat spicy food from the time they're born? And I say, no, they're just like any other child. They have mother's milk or somebody's milk, and uh, they like sweet things to start off with. But the difference is that an Indian child aspires to hot spicy food because it sees grown-ups eating them. And grown-ups and older cousins and older brothers and sisters are eating it with such joy and licking their lips and smacking their lips and doing all these noisy things with their mouths. And that you want to eat it. You can't wait for the day when the day comes when you can eat spicy foods. And the first time you eat it, you sort of, you're in shock. But, and it's no good. But you want to eat it. So you keep trying till you can eat it. And that's why when I wrote my book, Climbing the Mango Trees, I specifically wrote about the first time I really felt I'd graduated. And that was when we climbed the mango trees. We, in India, we love the hot and the sour all put together. And so the mangoes, when they are not ripe, they're especially, especially good because they're green and very, very sour. And so the way to eat them is to peel them and uh, eat them with, with salt and spices. So what we used to do as children, uh, we lived in a, a very, we, it's called a joint family in India, which is a large family with a grandfather at the head and then all his children and all the grandchildren or great-grandchildren, whoever they are, everybody living in one household. And if you see the book, Climbing the Mango Trees, you'll see many pictures of the whole family together. And so we were, all brought up in this very, very large uh, joint family. And um, the house that we were lived in was in an orchard. My grandfather and his cousins all together, he belonged to a joint family as well. So they had brought up this huge, huge orchard on the banks of the river Jamna or Yamuna. And that's where our house was, on the, and it was an orchard. So there were all kinds of fruit trees, including mango trees. So the older cousins would climb to the top of the tree with a penknife and get the mangoes, the mangoes sort of dangle, ready for you to sort of pluck quickly. And then they would peel them, cut them up, and hand them down to all of us who were on the trees like birds, you know, all of us on a different branch. And then we would have in our little palms little salt. See, I, my mouth is watering. This is the process. <laughs> this is how it starts. A little salt, a little pepper, a little ground roasted cumin, and a little chili powder. Mmm. And then you take your little bit of sour mango, and you dip it in this, and you eat it. And so I probably was about four years old when this happened for the first time, and that was graduation. Wearing stockings, you know, the whole lot. Suddenly, you were a grown-up and you could join the, the world and, and eat spices. So that's how it develops. But then there's something else that is going on in India at the same time. And it's always the grandmother or the mother who initiates you into another side of the spices. And the other side of the spices is the medicinal value of spices. That comes hand in hand. Oh, beta, it's, it's so, it's raining. So come on, let's have some hot jalebis, you know, and with hot milk. It's to, it's considered monsoon season. The monsoon season is 
when it's raining all the time. But in India, according to the Indian system of medicine, the times that are most dangerous, and when you can uh, get, pick up various diseases, are the changes of seasons. So you eat very nice, hot, warming foods during the season. And a lot of us associate these hot jalebis, which are little pretzel-like sweets, which are filled with syrup, and we eat them with hot milk. We associate them with the monsoons, because, but they were given to us at that time because they warmed up our bodies. It was cool, it was raining, and they warmed up our bodies. So in a Seattle weather, I would recommend <laughs> hot jalebis with hot milk. Uh, it would be very good for you. So, and, and again, the other aspect of this is that turmeric is supposed to be uh, something that helps calm infections in, inside the body. It takes care of infections outside the body. Uh, it's also, if you have any inflammation, it calms down the inflammation inside the body. So turmeric is a very, very useful uh, spice to know about. When a, one of my daughters cut her hand very badly, and she didn't want to go to the hospital, because she knew she would have to get a lot of stitches, and so the silly girl just took a whole lot of turmeric and dumped it on her hand. She did heal. Nothing went wrong, but it's a silly thing to do. I would have gone to the hospital. Uh, but still, turmeric is a healer. Now, I'll tell you two examples of turmeric as a healer. We, we went, you've heard the term juggernaut, right? Juggernaut comes from Jagannath, which is a place in India where every year they have a big festival where they draw, they pull three huge carts, which are with gods inside them. So it's a religious festival. And people come from all over that part of the world. It's in eastern um, India, in Orissa. And people come from all over. Millions and millions of people come to attend the Jagannath festival. And of course, when there are a lot of people together, there can be diseases that spread. And they can be on the way coming in, there may be mosquitoes that bite and you can get infections. So what people do, I saw more and more people coming with yellow faces. And I thought, what's going on here? And I was told that they put turmeric all over their faces like powder when they're traveling through a mos mosquito-ridden territory because the mosquito bites then don't get infectious because they have this turmeric on it. And in my own case, I'll tell you my own story, if you didn't read it in the book already, we were four daughters and two brothers, and all the daughters wanted their ears pierced. So my f mother said, okay, we'll take them to one of those ladies who comes with a, a nose a earring and pierces the ears. And my father said, no, my father was very proper and very hygienic and things had to be done in the Western manner, not in this Indian manner where just these ladies came with unclean hands and just put this thing in your ear and went away and usually you were all right the next day, but not my father, he wouldn't have any of that. So he said, they're going to a proper doctor. They're going to Dr. Mathur. 
Now, Dr. Mathur knew nothing about piercing ears. He'd never done it in his life, though he had Dettol and all the sort of uh, antiseptics on his desk, he knew nothing about piercing ears. So he took a needle, he could barely thread it, and he sort of threaded it with a thick thread, and each of us, he just did pierce them with this thing, pull the thread while we were screeching and yelling. He's pulling this thread through our ears. Then he ties a knot, and all four of us go home with these bloody ears with knots tied in our underneath with thread, and we, next day they're septic, all of them. So my mother and grandmother say, you know, I could have told you this would happen, etc., etc. and the men are looking very sheepish at this point. So then they, they say, you all go away, we'll do our treatment. And their treatment was, they took a little uh, bowl, metal bowl of ghee, clarified butter, into it, they put some turmeric. I'll never forget that smell. It's actually a very nice smell, the turmeric and the ghee together. It's a lovely smell. Then they dipped a homemade Q-tip type thing in that, and they put it hot, 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 hot on our ears. And they did it twice or thrice a day, every day. Our ears were yellow, absolutely yellow, and we went with these yellow earlobes to school Extremely embarrassing. Excuse me, excuse me. I'm yellow, yellow earlobes. But we were cured, and our ears were healed. And eventually, that stupid thread came out, and the rings that should have gone in in the beginning went in. So turmeric is definitely considered a very important um, antiseptic. And the other is ginger. Now I don't know how many of you grew up with this, but I certainly did. And uh, what I remember going once, I was in India collecting recipes as usual, and I went, I was in Lucknow, if any of you are familiar with that city, and one of my aunts lived there, and I arrived, it was winter, I arrived at her place with an absolutely horrible cold and a cough and not being able to talk, blowing my nose, and my aunt said, oh my God, just look at you, you look dreadful. And she said, come, come sit down, come, come and have breakfast. So she said, would you like some tea? I said, yes, without milk and sugar, please, I said, uh, because I wasn't having milk, I wasn't having sugar. She said, oh my God, you won't have milk and sugar? You want cream in it? I said, no, 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 please, nothing, nothing, nothing. And she said, would you like some toast with your tea? I said, yes, please, and, but without butter, please. So she said, you won't have butter, you won't have cream, you won't have milk, what is the matter with you? You're going to get very sick. So she then said, I will make you something and you will be better in 24 hours. So she disappeared into the kitchen and made a kind of tea, an infusion with ginger. It had black peppercorns in it. It had fennel. It had licorice. And it was strong, it was very strong, very gingery, very fennelly, very licorice Within 24 hours, everything had disappeared. I'd sweated it all out, and it was gone. So these things, you know, do make a difference. And one more story about medicines, I will tell you. Again, I was another time I was collecting recipes, and we'd gone into this home in Banaras, which is now called Varanasi, which 
You know, Indians can't do, don't say these names. We don't say Mumbai. We don't say uh, Chennai. We, we just stick to the old names that we know. And uh, so I still say Banaras, and I still say Bombay. And please go ahead and say that. Nobody <laughs> will mind. Uh, so I was in Banaras, and um, we were in the house. I was collecting vegetarian recipes. So we were in the house of this community. They are a trading community, and uh, very good with vegetarian foods, which are all cooked by the, the housewives or the or proper cook who's a Brahmin cook, and he cooks all the food, and it's served directly to the people, and it doesn't, no other hands touch it, and it's very pure. So I was eating these foods and talking to the ladies afterwards, and I said, one of the ladies said, we have recipes for things that you give two women who've just had children, and it's very healing for women. I said, I'd love to have that recipe. Uh, it, I would put it in my book. She said, it has a lot of ingredients. I said, that's all right. So she said, I have to go back and ask my mother-in-law. So she went behind a curtain into another room, and because they're a trading community, they deal all only in money, she came back with, you know, one of these when you are right adding on an adding machine, you have this long strip. She, the recipe was written, that's what they had in the house. That was the paper in the house, it was this long adding machine of, of paper. And on it was written in Hindi, all the ingredients and their amounts. And I said, oh, this is wonderful. I'll take it home and I'll write it in English and put it in my book. And then, an old hand came out, a finger came out of the curtains and said, if you leave even one of the ingredients out, you will die. <laughs> so there, there I was, I said, I'm not putting any of this in the book. <laughs> don't want to be responsible for anybody's deaths over here. So now these were some of the, the major influences that were there while I was growing up. And then the other thing that happened was, was the choice of schools, because this was still a colonial period. Uh, the British were still there, and there were my father, who tries to be very modern and traditional at the same time, he was definitely one of the people fighting for independence. In, and I remember as kids, our way of fighting for independence, there were many, many things we did to fight for independence. One of them was that we, would, we all love movies. So the whole family would go to movies. But at the end of the movie, they played the national anthem, which was... God saved the king at that time. And the flag would come on and my father would start marching out. My mother would follow and six children would follow. Out, out, out. We weren't going to stand for the national anthem. So that was one of our protest uh, things that we did. Then, um, because Gandhi was so important, and I, I must say as a kid, I was just completely taken by this nonviolent movement and everything he was trying to do. He was trying to tell us all to wear what they call Swadeshi cloth, cloth woven by Indians, for Indians, none of that imported British stuff. We were told just wear 
make your own fabric, spin your own yarn, make, weave your own fabric, wear the clothes made from that fabric. We won't take anything from England. Let them keep their factories. They are taking our cotton. Let them take it. Let them do what they want to do. We will weave and wear what we wear, which will be our own. So I was spinning thread, and I would spin it every day and take it in to the people who were weaving the thread. And we wore a lot of khadi, which was the cotton that was woven by, by uh, Gandhi's, the people Gandhi had suggested. So I was a great follower of Gandhi, and very, very much uh, my father was a follower of Gandhi. But when it came to education, he was in two minds about where to send us to school. And the choices were a very Indian school that taught every subject in my language, Hindi, and uh, was not sophisticated in any way, was not westernized in any way, or completely different, go to an Irish uh, a convent with Irish and German nuns. <laughs> so those were our choices, take it or leave it. So I remember my father just sort of driving us between the two and looking at the girls coming out of one, looking at the girls coming out of the other, and saying, what? <laughs> wondering what he should do with his girls. His boys were already in school, in a proper school, but we had nowhere to go. So in the end, he chose, for whatever his reasons were, the convent. So we ended up with these uh, Irish and German nuns. And there were many good things to be learned. I mean, I speak English the way I do because I think the convent did it. And uh, I read, I used to take out every, as many books as I could in the library, but they were books in English. And uh, so I became a master of English and the Western world there. But I was only there till the age of 12. And then something happened uh, at the time, around the time we got in, uh, independence, I had to change schools. We moved cities, and I came to Delhi. Uh, we were in a smaller town before, and then we came back to Delhi to live again with my grandfather. And the choices of school there were the convent, which I went to, which had segregation, and I marched out. I said, I'm not going to do, have this. I'm not going to be in a segregated school. And I walked out. And then the other choice was a missionary school, but for Indian girls. And there, every subject, till the age of 12 or 13, was in my own language, in Hindi. And so I found myself learning both languages and becoming really acquainted with my own tongue in a way I would not have had I stayed in the convent. So I was really very, very lucky to have both in my life. Uh, and as far as acting was concerned, I, was, I had been acting since the age of five. We, uh, we used to, in the convent school, we used to do what they called concerts every year. They were musicals, really. And I wasn't a good singer, so after the age of five, I had to leave uh, because I didn't really sing very well. My sisters sang very well, but I didn't. But I played the, a brown mouse in the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And the best thing about that was the hot chocolate we got in the intermission every time. <laughs> so I stayed being a brown mouse as long as I could in that particular. So food, food was always the lure. 
that uh, <laughs> took me to, to various places, and I must say I enjoyed it uh, very, very much. And, and, and food just stayed with me. Then later on in the same school, which was, it was an interesting school. It was called a parda school. In other words, kids who wore the veil could come to that school. And they were collected from the inner city in a, a horse carriage which had curtains. And then they all wore their burqa, which is complete head-to-toe covering, when they got into those uh, carriages. Then they came to school, they hopped out of those carriages and took off their burqas, hung them up on hooks, like we have hooks for coats, they had hooks for burqas. All the Muslim girls would take their burqas off. And then we would be in class together and there were half Muslims in our class, in my particular class, and half Hindus. And we would all eat together. And this was the best part of the day, our lunches, where everybody brought little carriers, tiffin carriers they were called, filled with food. And each brought their own food. And each food was totally different from the other's food. So we love to eat other people's food. I like the Muslim girl's food or the Jain. The Jain girls had no onion and no garlic in their food. And they didn't eat too many root vegetables. They didn't eat beets. They didn't eat anything that looked red and bloody, like beets and tomatoes. Uh, they were, they, Jainism came into being at the same time as Buddhism. And they were very, in some ways, similar. No eating of meat at all. Uh, not killing of animals, not killing of insects even. They had carried it to a further degree. Then there were South Indian girls who would bring South Indian food, dosas and idlis, wonderful stuff. So it was really a learning time for me as far as foods were concerned, that what I grew up with was only one itty, itsy bitsy bit of Indian food. There was lots more. And a Muslim family and a Hindu family could cook the same dish, but it tasted totally different. As we say in India, the hand was different. So the taste was different. It was how you fried the spices, how you turned the meat, how long you let it sit with coals on the top. All these little things made a difference. So I began to learn. I wasn't still cooking. I cooked nothing. I never even went into the kitchen, really. But I was eating these things, and all these things were making a great impression on me. And I was to remember them and retain them until I went to England. And I don't know what the time is. So anyway, so what happened next was that uh, I had to go to college at some particular stage. And uh, my father picked a college for me, decided where I would go, where my older sister was going. It was a wonderful college in Delhi. And uh, I went there. And of course, the Indian food was still very much part of my life, but new things were coming in. Now, one of the new things was Coca-Cola. And you'd be surprised. I had been introduced to Western food in various ways before. We ate some Western dishes in our house. We had roasts, but they were not like anything you would recognize. They were Indian roasts. Like they, it was a leg of lamb being roasted. Well, they put a little ginger, garlic, chilies. Without it, it would be tasteless, according to Indians. And, uh, and then it was sort of roasted, but not in an oven. It was roasted in a pot. It was like a pot roast. And so we ate those. We had a lot of soups. We all Indians love soups. So we had a lot of Western soups. And uh, 
So we had a taste for Western things. They were exotic. And I was, we were talking about it earlier on a radio show that I was on. One of the big things that came was K-rations. You know, after the war, suddenly the military was in India because they were fighting the Japanese who were coming from Burma into India at that time, and we were fearing that the Japanese would come and attack us. So the armies were there, the British Army, the American Army, and suddenly, there was suddenly this K-rations that they had to get rid of. That and parachute silk, I remember. They had to get rid of all the parachute silk that they had and all the K-rations. So all Indians were wearing dresses made out of parachute silk. <laughs> very trendy, very modern. I have a parachute silk dress, you know. And, and then we were being, they actually unloaded into the market these K-rations, which were very exotic looking. They came in this wax paper, sort of khaki colored box. And we would buy them for nothing. And then us little kids would take them in and then we would open it up. And my goodness, the things that were inside it, there were cigarettes. We gave them to the older cousins or the servants or somebody else. And then there was olives in a can. I'd never eaten olives before. There was fruit cocktail. My goodness, we got only fresh fruit, you know, just you know, <laughs> apples and oranges and, you know, the, the usual everyday stuff, mangoes, you know. But this was all in a tin. And there was a cherry. There was a cherry inside it as well. And we thought it was the greatest thing on earth. And then there was spam. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And we would take, open the spam and cut it up into small pieces and share. Take a little bit, take it. We thought it was the best thing on earth. So our introduction, what we considered exotic, was something quite different from what you consider exotic. <laughs> and then I went to college. And needless to say, being me and sort of running the college pretty much in my own way. And I was secretary of the college union. And, and one day, I think what this company had done was look out and see who were the ringleaders in various colleges. So one day, I'm sitting at home in my garden, and a huge truck rolls up to my house. And on it is a sign, Coca-Cola. I'd only seen Coca-Cola in movies and in Life magazine. I'd never had Coca-Cola. I never knew it had come from America to India. And they had targeted people, and obviously I had been targeted. And the man came in and he said, the Coca-Cola Company of America has sent you a gift. <laughs> I said, thank you very much. Um, and, and there were like 100 cases of Coca-Cola. And I said, okay, into my kitchen. And I'd seen, in the movies, I'd seen how young girls and pedal pushers went to the fridge and took out a Coke. So I said, okay, put most of them here, but put some in the fridge. Because <laughs> I'd like to be in my pedal pushers and take out a Coke and have it and offer it to my friends. It was such a nice American thing to do. So I became the leader of the spread of Coca-Cola <laughs> in Miranda House, my college. 
And I said, let's have some Coke parties. Let's, let's do some of that. Because I thought it was really a fantastic thing to do. So I was responsible for many bad things <laughs> and a few good things. So after college, uh, I was acting in plays and uh, very interested in the theater. I'd managed to get a few scholarships to study in Britain. And my father was quite excited. You see, I was the fifth child. And he had two good-looking boys, two very good-looking girls, and then there was me, a sort of odd creature that did odd things. And he put up with me so beautifully because he, he thought I was weird and sort of nice, and he, he was a rather intrigued by what I would do with myself. And he kept saying, you should be an ambassador. You should be going to the Foreign Service and you be an ambassador. I said, I don't want to be an ambassador, but I want to act. So he said, okay, go ahead. And till the end, I remember there was one, I had done a film called Shakespeare Wala and I'd won a huge award for it. And the president of India was giving us awards for it. And my father was very much there. And he was telling all his friends, it's a hobby. It's a <laughs> It's, she does it as a hobby. He still thought I'd be the ambassador, you know, one day. So, and then he very sweetly then put me on a boat, a P&O liner in Bombay. He took me to Bombay and put me on a boat to go to England to study drama. And that was, you know, absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Because again, on the boat, I was 20 or something, but ready to leave, just absolutely ready. I knew there were adventures ahead. I knew I was going to come into my own in some way, in some other place. And I was really ready for that adventure. I think I'm going to stop now and continue another time with, <laughs> with, Hello, everybody. So um, I'm just uh, sitting here. I've got all of these notes of everything that I just thought was so special about Mother Joffrey's memoirs. And um, I'm going to be ad-libbing a lot tonight just because every, I feel so good about this. Everything that I thought was so amazing is exactly what you touched upon as well. So uh, ah, it, 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 it really was. Um, I was telling Mother G um, earlier that I think one reason for me that this memoir and also her cookbooks and everything was just so like touching to the heart is um, my mother and father had the same history, I would say, the same life in Delhi, in old Delhi. The difference was that my father was a walking refugee from what is now Pakistan in Lahore and lived in old Delhi, swam in the same Jamna River. But it, it was the same stories, but just told from a very different um, point of view. And so, one thing I would like to do, and in, you know, you touched upon this as well, Gandhiji, and how you were, you know, a follower of, of him. And one thing that really touched me is in the book, um, Motherji writes that she and her mother went to Birla House. Uh, Birla is the name of a big industrial family in India, and they went through the crowds, and it was packed, and they weren't sure they were going to make it there. But they went to Birla House in the evening for prayers to pray along with Gandhiji. And um, I could say the prayer. It's a beautiful prayer that every Indian knows, but I think it's more appropriate. No, no, you if, say it. You say so, it. Okay, so it's Ishwar Allah Tera Naam, Sabko Sanmati De Bhagwan. 
And at a time like this in India, it's basically Ishwar is the name of the Hindu god, Allah is the name of the Muslim god, and it's important, um, you know, whether you are called Ishwar, whether you are called Allah, you are the same god, and please give us the wisdom and the tolerance. And so three days later, after she and her mother went to this, uh, the prayer with Gandhiji, Gandhiji was assassinated. And again, if you read the memoir, one thing also that is touched upon, which I thought was so beautiful, was you come from an ancestry of, um, of, of scribes to the Muslim government. And so your family, it, it toggled both Hindu and Muslim in terms of even eating. And mm -hmm. I think this was another part that was great was the men of your family had taken on the kebabs and the biryani and the plows and the women of the family in the kitchen stuck to the vegetarian cuisine. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it would be great if you could, because you grew up in a big, big joint family. Yeah, I didn't uh, touch on that because it's, uh, I only had an hour. <laughs> <laughs> But the way we grew up, you see, the, my ancestors, if you go back to the 16th century, my ancestors worked in the Mughal courts. They were ministers, they were prime ministers, they were translators, historians. They did all kinds of jobs in the court. And the court language at that time was Persian. So they all had to learn Persian. And as they learned the language, they also acquired the etiquette that goes with the language and goes with the Muslim culture. And I remember my aunts telling me the story that uh, Muslims, of course, wore the burqa and the veil, so all the, they all lived in the inner city at that time. There was no other place to live. It was what is called Old Delhi now. And our ancestral home is in Old Delhi. And when they had to go to school, they would go in a horse-drawn carriage with curtains on it. And that was the only carriage that could manipulate the lanes, the tiny little lanes of the, of the, uh, the uh, inner city. And uh, they lived in one large uh, community. But the men dressed in a Muslim manner. They wore the whites and the kurtas, which are worn by the Muslims. They ate foods that the Muslims ate, so we had all the lovely biryanis and the palaos and the meats. The women very often were vegetarian, but the men, they cooked for the men, and they cooked all this meat for the men, but they very often didn't eat it themselves because they were following the old Hindu tradition that had come to them since ancient times. But the men will be the men, and they will do what they do to earn their livings, and the women just did it for them, but didn't become them. They read their own uh, religious texts. They read the Ramayana, they read the Gita, which were the Hindu texts. And the men read Persian poetry, had drinking parties. They were known as sharabi kababis, which means sharab is liquor, kabab is kabab. And, uh, and the men were known for being sharabi kababis, and the women catered, <laughs> catered to them. Every now and then they would take in some kebabs and some of them would eat them, but they never drank. And I remember my mother going to parties where the men were always offered uh, liquor and the women would all say, orange juice, please, orange juice, some juice, please. And I remember going to Pakistan 
One year I was writing about food in Pakistan, and I drink whiskey. And uh, the men were always offered the whiskey, and it passed me by. And I would get angrier and angrier till finally one day I took one. And there was this collected gasp from all the men. <laughs> and it's just not done. In Pakistan, the women will have juices. They might privately drink whiskey at smaller parties, but not in big parties. They just don't do it. But in India, it was exactly the same. The women just don't drink. But I did get my scotch in quietly. <laughs> <laughs> So it, we were brought up with a combination of Muslim tradition, but Hindu food also mixed in, Hindu, Muslim together. And so naturally, we grew up in a very, very tolerant kind of world. And when the partition happened, I didn't talk about that either. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with what happened about the history of India. India was partitioned, but partitioned by the British uh, for, we were given independence, hooray, and we were partitioned at the same time. And the partition was a line. It went through fields, it went through houses, it went through towns, it went through villages. Nobody seemed to care. It was just a line, just drawn and horrible for, for Indians at that time. And as her family would know even more than mine, though I know it too, my class in school the Muslims disappeared. They were gone. First we fought for about six months. The Hindus on one side, the Muslims, we fought bitterly with each other in the classes. Me, all of us, the Hindus saying there should be no Pakistan, it should all be one India. And the Muslims saying we want Pakistan, we want Pakistan. And then the country eventually being split. Muslims leaving. I never saw those friends again to go to Pakistan. People killing, a million people were killed as the crossings took place, a million people. Trains came from one side and the other side filled with dead bodies. And uh, it was an absolute horrible, horrible time. And her family, they were refugees, so they would even know more about it. Well, um, I'm, I'm gonna just add a little tidbit. You write about how you learned how to swim in the Jamna River. Yeah. And my father also learned how to swim in the same Jamna River. And I think it would be beautiful if you explained to everybody how your cousin taught you how to swim, because one thing which, um, which you write about a lot, which I wanted to also touch upon is, you talk about very sophisticated family meals, you talk about very intricate meals, but you also give just as much love and attention to very simple things like the lychees from Dehradun. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. just the onion, the joys and different ways that you can eat the onion. And mm -hmm. so, you know, this juxtaposition between fancy meals and just the beautiful, simple things in life, it, to me, it just kind of all came together with your swimming lesson that you got <laughs> and what you did with the piece of equipment yeah. um, after the swimming lesson. Um, so th this was when I, I can't remember how old I was. It must have been five, six, I, I'm not sure really. But <coughs> all my cousins, you see, my friends were my cousins because we, that's the people we knew. They were, we didn't really make friends in school. They were chums in school, but we never invited them somehow to the house because the house was always full. There was always these hundreds of cousins. And you became friends with the ones who were your ages. And there were six or seven of us. I have pictures of them in my book. And they were all boys and me. So they'd played cricket, and I played cricket with them. They'd sometimes let me play. 
They went fishing. They fixed up my rod and took me fishing with them. But they also used to swim in the river, which is just behind our house, the Jamna River. And it was a wonderful way that we, we used to do it. We used to go to the banks of the river, and then we would cross the river in a boat, a big boat. And this was the milkman's boat in those days. Now they built a whole city on the other side of the river. But in those days, there was nothing. There was only fields on the other side of the river. So this was the milkman's boat. The milkman would come from the other side of the river with the milk that they sold in the city. And they would come in that boat, and we would take the same boat back to the other shore. And why were we going to the other shore? We were going to buy watermelons. There were vast watermelon fields on the other side of the river at that time. And so we, we would go to the fields, and there were all these watermelons, like pumpkins, lying in the field outside. And we would pick one and buy it from the watermelon guy. It was very, very heavy, and so we would roll it on the sand onto the water. And then it floated. And that's how I learned to swim. We used a watermelon as a float. So my cousins, of course, all boys, all knew how to swim. All of them were older than me. And I would say, okay, they would say, come on, come on, now we'll teach you how to swim. You put your hands on the watermelon. So I'm holding the watermelon tight. And they say, now kick your feet. We're teaching you the crawl. And I'm kicking my feet. So I would swim. They would swim beside me like protective big fish. And I would be the little one with the watermelon. And I would slowly get across the river with them along my side, and then we would take the river, and then, of course, again, you had to roll it uphill, and it was a job to carry it back home, but that's how I learned how to swim. And you ate the watermelon. Of course we yes. ate the watermelon. And not only did we eat the watermelon, but just as in the South you have watermelon pickle made with the rinds, my grandmother always made watermelon pickle with the rinds. It was absolutely delicious. So one more thing is, you know, you mentioned about your cousins, yeah. and I think it's really important right now um, in North America where modern society is going, where we have nuclear homes, and, you know, the joint family is something romantic that you read in novels, and, um, you know, it happens in India. How much of your appreciation of food, starting from, and I'll quote what you wrote here, because it was just so, when you talk about when you were four years old and you graduated to spicy with the mangoes yeah, yeah. and eating it. And, you know, in your words, you said, our tingling mouths were telling us that we had ceased to be babies. Yes. And that was all with your cousins. It was in a community. Could you, like, just talk a little bit about how you see food in today's North America and the individual households versus your, again, your palate, your visual, your smell of food and experiencing it with your cousins and your mother um, you know, and the women in your family, and just in number five house, number seven, if you could just explain the difference between then and now. Well, you see, <coughs> I think they did, there's some statistics on it, which I don't remember, needless to say, but <coughs> how many people have dinner together as a family? They did that in America, and they found that very few people sit together for a meal. Now, I read statistics to that effect a long time ago, and my husband is a musician, so he played at that time in the New York Philharmonic. So he went to work in the evenings. So we never had a meal at mealtime. I think this whole business of eating together 
nuclear families is all we can do in this country, but we ate together. There were 30 people eating together, and my grandfather had put three tables, one after the other. He used to buy tables at auctions, and <coughs> he had got three of them. And first, it was he sat at the head on a chair. My grandmother, aunts and uncles all had chairs, and then the next table, and then they became benches for our kids. <coughs> and the dining room was a separate annex altogether. It was separated from the main house by a courtyard. And the one end of the annex, it was a long room, one end looking out on the river, and the other end leading to the kitchens and the storerooms, etc. But it was an annex that you had to, if it was raining, we had to run to it because it wasn't a covered area. And we all ate together. And it was always cooked en masse in, in, the, in a very, very big kitchen. And the smells of that food, the basmati rice and the, the, the moong dal cooking in the mornings, it was heavenly. It was what sort of made you want to rush there and start eating. Because the smells is what comes first to you. It comes out of the chimneys of the kitchen. And you begin smelling it in the main house. And we were always drawn to it. And then all the cousins ate together. So I associate food with great a kind of coziness and company. And I found that I was missing that in America, mainly because my husband had to go to work. So we created it. We said we'd eat earlier. And my husband said, I'm going to fall asleep on the stage. And we said, you fall asleep on the stage, but we are going to eat together. And we did. And, and the kids. All my kids cook, my grandkids cook. I never taught them, but they had to help in the kitchen. And my children always say, but you kept saying, come and cook, come and cut, come and chop. That's how we learned how to cook. But I never remember teaching them anything. It was the act of doing that is very, very important. And you know, when you read the Ayurveda, which is one of our books that talks about food and the art of living, really, the part that is done in the kitchen is considered very important. The chopping, the cutting, the pounding. It's a rhythm, which are, they're called the graces. And it's very important to have that. It's a calming thing. If you're rushed and you're panicked, it won't work. But if you just go into the kitchen, all right, zucchini to be chopped. Start chopping. It's the rhythm of it all that is the calming thing. And it's considered very important in the whole Ayurvedic way of thinking, as are all the foods and how you eat them, but certainly starting at the early point, which is in the kitchen. And so before I take, um, I'm going to read some uh, questions here. Before I do that, if there's one more thing I think that if, if I would love it if you explained to the audience was yeah. the trip that you would make with your mother and her attache case yes. uh, to her house. Yes. And the difference between the food at your home, where yes. your father's family was, and when you would go to Old Delhi behind the gates to where your mother's family All right. and your aunt's cooking. So uh, my father was, as I said, very westernized. He had gone to a very wonderful college, which is still a wonderful college in Delhi, a missionary college called St. Stephen's College. And uh, my grandfather had gone there. So they were all sort of westernized, but Persian-speaking, slightly Muslim in their culture, 
people, and I, the women were totally different. And every now and then, my mother would go to her family, and which was just considered, my father would always think of them as a rather humble family. They didn't have much money. But they were very, as my father always said, they're good people. They're very good people. <clears throat> so we would go to these good, humble people uh, every now and then with my mother. And uh, she, again, this mispronunciation of English words was continued, and I never knew any other word like majors. I thought they were majors. Now here, my mother always said, all right, let's go. I will take my attache case. <laughs> and her attache case was an attache case and into which she would put a change of a sari that she would take for, because she was going to spend the day. She would take some gifts for her, her relatives, and we would go, and the car would take us only to a point at which the car could go. And after that, in the inner city, cars couldn't go, so we walked. So the driver would park the car, and he would carry the, or my mother would carry the attache case, and we would walk into the old lanes of Delhi. Now, we always passed one shop. It was, you can't call it a restaurant, but they sold what they were called stuffed puris, and they are fried breads, and they were gorgeous. They were stuffed with fenugreek greens, they were stuffed with dals, they were stuffed with cauliflower and radishes and all kinds of things. And you only paid at these places for the bread. Everything else came on a big uh, leaf platter and was free. So you could have as much of the other stuff, but you only paid, paid for the bread. So we would walk by, and my mother and I would both think, my father wouldn't like it. He'd say it's unclean, dirty street food. But come on, let's go in. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't there. So we would go in and have a little bit of this. Uh, it, they were, these particular puris were called bervis. That was the name for them. And we would have them with lovely potato dishes, lovely radish pickles, and all kinds of different pickles, and uh, vegetable. It was all vegetarian. And we would sit and eat and have our fill of this as a kind of breakfast. And then we would go to my, my mother's, my grandmother's house from my mother's side. And these were lovely old sort of mansions, really. They, my mother's was not a big mansion, but my father's side was an old, big, huge mansion. And there were courtyards after courtyards after courtyards. But the courtyards each had rooms on all sides going several floors up. And uh, in the evenings, they would cook. They, they would have the big meal of the evening. And one of the, my absolute favorite dishes was mushrooms. And these were in the summer. You only got these mushrooms in the monsoon season. They were, I've never seen those mushrooms. They were tiny with a little cap, a little sort of umbrella, like a closed umbrella cap. And they would cook these mushrooms in a way that is, was heavenly, absolutely heavenly. And, but the custom was that the men ate first. The men sat down, there was a, they spread out a sheet, the men sat down, and the women served them, so we all served them, and I would watch the mushrooms <laughs> decrease, get lower and lower and lower. Now, I'm never going to get any of those, I'm never going to get any of those. And usually we were lucky if we got the juice, the sauce at the end, because they ate them all up. 
And it was the most delicious thing that we ever have ever eaten. And of course, a lot of meats were cooked because again, it was the Muslim tradition. This way of sitting and eating communally is a Muslim tradition where you all dip into the same plate. Hindus would never do that. Oh, my food is so pure. Don't put your finger in it. In fact, I write about it in the book mm -hmm. that if somebody has touched your food, you don't eat it. Somebody has done my, you don't, in my, India, you would never say, mm, this apple is lovely, would you like some? Oh, no, 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 not done. So now, when I, in America, when people take, have a drink and they say, mm, it's a yummy drink, would you like to taste some? I just die, and I just fall on my sword. I don't know what to do, because <laughs> naturally, I will not drink it. But unnaturally, I would not like to hurt my friend. So I take a deep breath and take a sip, and I really call it falling on my sword because my nature says, no, 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 don't drink it. Remember what your mother said, it's unclean, don't drink it. So, well, juta, the word, the juta. Yeah, juta. Juta, yeah. that's what it is, and, um, and then we grew up doing the same thing, yeah. that if you wanted to keep something, like you mentioned in the book, like if I didn't want to share my candy bar with my sister, I would lick it and say, yeah. oh, sorry, juta, you can't have it. <laughs> so, um, yes. And you grew up doing the same thing as well. So I would read some, the first one, let's just do a really quick one. What is the vegetable called drumstick? Oh, gosh. And so it's, I, I don't know the English name for it, but it is the most gorgeous vegetable. It's long like a bean, but with a hard exterior. So you cut it up into segments, and very often it's put in dal, but you can cook it in other ways as well. And the way you eat it, mm -hmm. when it's cooked and it's soft, it takes about 15 minutes or 20 minutes to cook through. It's like, think artichoke. You put it in your mouth and you pull, and the hard stringy outside is left behind, and the wonderful inner part, which is sort of seeds and flesh, is delicious. And it takes on the flavor. It's a squashy kind of family. I don't know what family it is, really. But the, it has a delicious taste, and it does take on the taste of whatever it's cooked with. Okay, what is on your bucket list, and what keeps you inspired? What's on my bucket list? Okay, a lot of things on my bucket list. A lot of them involve travel. Mm -hmm. Because I feel that there's, you learn more by traveling, I've learned more by traveling than anything else in the world. You learn about worlds that exist that you don't know anything about. And you learn about small worlds and you learn about big worlds. So my bucket list includes a lot of travel. I want to go to Mongolia. I want to go where the Silk Road meets other roads in Samarkand, in that area. I feel a lot of food trails with food going east and west and north and south are buried right there in Samarkand. This is my dream, that somehow I'll go there and I'll be able to dig up and find the history of every food because it's <laughs> gone through that region. So um, this question, are you going to write about how Indian cuisine has influenced other cuisines around the world? I've written about it already. It's a, a pink book. It's called um, From Curries to Kebabs. Uh, and it does talk about Indian food, how it traveled to Fiji, how it traveled to Trinidad and uh, Guyana and to, to Britain and, and 
to America, to South Africa, to the Mauritius, how it changed, what happened to it. So I'm going to give you a choice here because we just have a couple of minutes. Okay. So I'm going to give you two questions and you answer. I'll answer all of them quickly. Okay. So one of them is, uh, says, I loved Cotton Mary. Would you talk about the character you played and how did you create her? Well, Cotton Mary is, uh, uh, she is a woman who's an Anglo-Indian. So she's of mixed race with all the complexities of a mixed race person. And she has more complexities than others. She's not rich, she's poor, she's not too well educated, she's a nurse, and uh, she's not, she's got very complicated insights that don't have her ending up doing good things always. She's so insecure. And I must say that while I played it, I became kind of her for three months, and it was awful, I'm sure it was awful to live with. Uh, because you can't play the character in the morning and give it up in the evening. Though we were in Kerala, which is a great state of India to be in with great food, and we would go out in the evenings and have these wonderful meals. But somehow the character stayed with me, and I had to play her for three months. And it was one of the most not nice people that I've played. And yet I wanted to play her. She's like a little like Lady Macbeth. You want to play her because it's a kind of ultimate role for an actress. And so the follow-up then is, would you mind commenting on the plight of women and girls in India these days? Which women? Which women? The plight of women and girls in India these oh, days. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Call me back. <laughs> That's why I chose Cotton Mary first. Um, so then there's a question here from a third grader. Uh, what made you become a cookbook writer? Anything Desperation. Okay. <laughs> I, I was looking for work as an actress when I came to New York, and I couldn't find any. I would get a part every two years or three years, and I was not going to be, make a living that way at all. So I started writing, which I could do, and I've started writing for American magazines and newspapers, and I was writing about anything I knew anything about, and mostly I knew about the arts. I wrote about dance, I wrote about sculpture, I wrote about painting, uh, and all kinds of other things. I wrote about St. Uh, Francis being buried, in, not buried, but embalmed and kept in Goa. I wrote an article about that for the Smithsonian. So I was writing on all kinds of subjects, and somebody said, would you like to write about what you ate as a child in India? And I wrote that, and that projected me, threw me into a world, I was hijacked into this world of food, uh, where somebody approached me and said, would you do a cookbook? And I did a cookbook, and it got good reviews, and somebody said, would you cook on television? And so it went. So it just, it took a life of its own. I didn't plan it, I didn't study for it. I'm not a cook in that sense but I've written cookbooks. <laughs> so um, I'm gonna, since I'm up here, I'm gonna be the bossy one and have my own question as the final okay. one. Okay. Um, at my restaurant, and you know, for 19 years, um, I'm increasingly finding many, many people who are lactose intolerant, or they're vegans, and they come to the Indian restaurant, and of course you can get vegan cuisine, but you know, they come to the Indian restaurant now with expectations that, oh, this is an Indian restaurant, I must be able to get my vegan cuisine. 
And so I would like for you to explain what you write in the book, which I had laughed and I loved, was how you say India is a milky nation. And what you mean by that? <coughs> History. And go back a little bit. Much of India, especially the north, is made up of a group of people whose name will frighten people, especially those of Jewish descent. And please, bear with me. Let me just finish. Don't be frightened. We were Aryans, not what you think of as Aryans, but the people who came from the Ural Mountains into India. We were driven from out from the Ural Mountains, and historically we are called Aryans, but you can call us what you like. And we came from the Ural Mountains through Persia, through Afghanistan, into India, and settled in the north. And we brought with us the respect and love of cows and cow milk became a very important part of the Indian tradition. Cows initially, if you look 4000 BC, were not holy. We ate cows, but we also had their milk. And as time went on, uh, the milk aspect of the cow became very, very important. It sustained a lot of people. We made everything from cow's milk, butter, uh, yogurts, cheeses, fresh cheeses, all were made, our sweets were made with milk. Uh, every form of our drinks, winter drinks were made with milk, milk with almonds, milk with saffron, milk, our puddings were made with milk, milk with rice, rice pudding, kheer, what we call, milk, milk, milk. In mornings when I got up, we had our own cow, it was milked, drank a glass of milk in the morning, glass of milk in the evening. When we went to wash our faces, my mother said, wash it with milk. And we took this milk onto our faces, little blobs of milk hanging from our <laughs> eyes, and then we would rub it and rub it and rub it, and sort of dirt fell off our faces. And we have good skins, my mother and I, and I don't know if it's hereditary or it's the milk. I don't really know. But there we are. My mother had very good skin. We have very good skin. And we were made to do this milk thing uh, every morning. So milk is very important in India. And most Indians are not lactose intolerant. So veganism, which doesn't have ghee, which Indians love, doesn't have yogurt, which Indians love, doesn't have milk, is anathema to Indians. But our cuisine is good at it, though, even though, which yeah. I think is the beauty of Indian food, is how it can, like milk is such a big deal to our culture, but then, like you mentioned, the array of the spices. We can cook vegetables without yes. any milk product. We can, do, we can do it, but we don't normally think milklessly. <laughs> Thank you. 
so um, this leads us to the end of the evening, and I just want to say one thing that when Ruth um, and Rebecca emailed me and asked if I would uh, moderate a question and answer session, I did jump out of my seat. <laughs> I didn't check any calendars. I didn't care where my children were going to be tonight. Um, I was just so excited about this, and um, I really recommend to everybody, it is the most beautiful, forget even the food aspect of, aspect of it, it's the most beautiful memoir I have read, and I personally think that you could probably do part two. Yeah. Because you, it was just beautiful. I would, I mean, it, it, I mean, if you decided to write a thousand pages, it could be a version of Indian War and Peace. <laughs> so. Oh boy, oh boy. I loved it. So. It was an honor. That was Mater Joffrey at Seattle Arts and Lectures in 2013, and this was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of Sal on Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.